Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. This is The Opus, an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Every month, we delve into an album's inner workings and lasting impact. What makes a record not only withstand the test of time, but continue to influence the world around us. I'm your host, Carrie Corgan, and this is the final installment of our season discussing Jeff Buckley's lone studio album, Grace. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to dive deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener curious for more. Either way, you're in the right place. Imagine for a moment that you're the parent of a young musician on the rise. His life and career are full of promise and you're full of pride. Imagine the moment that immense joy gets dashed. A piece of your heart is ripped away. Your son went for a swim and didn't leave the water. And not only is your son gone, but everything he poured his soul into, everything left of him, is unattended and there are people, strangers, scrambling to figure out what to do with it. You've got two options. I could either step in and become a part of the process or go home and mourn and just let the record label and the industry do whatever they wanted. And it just seemed to me that there was no choice but to be involved. That's Mary Guibert, Jeff Buckley's mother. Stepping in is exactly what she did. Since his untimely death 22 years ago, Mary has kept Buckley's voice and vision alive in his absence. In our previous episode, we discussed the complicated nature of posthumous fame. All the decisions that need to be made on behalf of a deceased artist, who makes them, and, in the case of Jeff Buckley, how these decisions affect our vision of him today. To conclude our exploration of Jeff's legacy and how his music has lived long after, I'm going straight to the source and speaking with the people who have the incredibly difficult and delicate job of keeping Buckley's estate and music alive. Mary, you've been at the forefront of everything bearing Jeff's name. Yeah, talk about unintended consequences. When you're growing up and you become an adult, you have all these 
well, for me, uh, you know, aspirations of becoming an artist and an actor and doing all kinds of exciting things. And then life turns out to give you a different menu to work from. <laughs> I never envisioned myself being a curator of someone else's work. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, no one expects this. You didn't anticipate becoming a curator, and yet you did. And it happened to be your son's life you were responsible for curating. Can you tell me a little about how you got involved so soon after his death? Well, the overriding atmosphere around it was this as yet unreleased but well-prepped album that had gone into the studio and recorded some tracks and then Jeff rejected them. So now we have an artist who put some things on tape and did some of the prep work for the final product to be made in studio, and yet it's not a finished product. How do you treat it? What do you do with it? Do you bury it? Do you say, oh, no, he never delivered it to you. It doesn't belong to you. You know, in his contract, unless he delivers the music, you can't do anything with it, technically. So there was a no music choice. And the other option was one or two individuals at the label had kind of a grip on Jeff's portion of the world musically. And their suggestion was to, quote unquote, strike while the iron is hot while Jeff's name was, you know, on the headlines of print media. So neither of those seemed right to me. So I had to give it some thought and I had to talk to the guys in the band and I had to get a lawyer. And I also had to come to grips with the fact that I couldn't be a grieving mom. A grieving mom couldn't really cope with the technical and industrial, the contractual obligations that an artist have. If if I wanted to step into Jeff's shoes, then I had to deliver like an artist would and is contracted to do. And how did they take it when you stepped in and said, let me be a part of this, treat me how you would treat him, give me some control? That kind of question went on for a couple of weeks until we just had a great coming together, so to speak. I had a private meeting with Donnie Einer. And uh, to his credit, he asked me what I wanted. And I bravely said, absolute control. (laughs) And he kind of sat back in his chair a little bit. And I said, but I'm not going to make you put it in writing. And then he sat forward in his chair. (laughs) And we began to talk about what that would entail. And I literally said, I just want to be in the room, in the recording studio. I want to be there when you master, when you remix, when you do anything to it. I want to be sure that what we do is pretty close to nothing, except to just clean it up and make it acceptable for release, and then only release those things that we can be proud of. And that was a basis upon which he could agree. And we literally shook hands. And that was it. And again, to his credit, the word went out that I would be involved, that I would be consulted, and that I would literally participate on my own dime, show up wherever I needed to show up, and stay for the duration until the work was done. And so that's what I've been doing. And each and every professional who came to the work to help me taught me everything I needed to know and respected everything that I brought to the table that was uniquely from my perspective as having lived with Jeff and understood him and known him all his life, and also as a musician. So I, I didn't just you know, come as a mom. I came as a classically trained musician. I wasn't just a, a, a mercy <laughs> appointment, as it were. I was respected. I respected them. We did the work. 
Was it ever intimidating? Oh, very much so. Because, you know, when you're working with the kind of professionals that Sony can bring to the table, you're pretty sure about who you're dealing with. These people have maybe the best pair of ears, a half dozen ears in the universe, and have been doing what they do for Bob Dylan and name any Sony artist, and they've been doing it for them. So that gets to be intimidated. But I have to say, these gentlemen and ladies turn to me and say, what do you think? And how do you think that turned out? The choices that they relied on me to make turned out to be pretty good. Maybe it's out of instinct or just, uh, you know, some higher force. Um, I have a pretty good batting average so far. And that increases their confidence in my choices and my decisions. Very often they'll call me and say, okay, it's time for another release. We'd like to do this one, two, and three. And I'll say, well, how about H, I, and J? And they'll go, ooh, that's even more interesting. And then we're off to the races. Then now we've really got something that is getting everybody excited to work on, you know, from the top all the way down to the bottom. Right. And you brought up choices. I'm really curious, how do you make these choices? It's got to be such a hard thing to do. It's a very fine line to walk, starting first with how you choose to release the music. You said you do as little as possible, just clean things up. How do you weigh your own opinion of what sounds best while also thinking for Jeff and trying to infer what he would want? Yeah, yeah. Well, a long ago, I had to make the decision for myself that I could not possibly make the same decision that Jeff would have made. Because frankly, I would make a, a scientific wild-ass guess and he would go in a totally different direction. So I, I knew that if I were going to make the standard do what Jeff would have done, would have been, I would make myself crazy. So the standard for me has always been how well it could cleave to Jeff's aesthetic, knowing that he was happy to make mistakes in front of people, that he was more interested in the spontaneity and the realness of the moment, being in the moment with his audiences. Because there were times when he'd flub up the beginning of an intro and go, and the audience would be kind of in shock because they would not have known that he made a mistake. And he'd say, I'm sorry, folks, I've got to do that again. And he'd look to the band and give them whatever instructions, wrong key or whatever it was, and then go back and start over again and maybe even sing it differently. My mission is not to expose his perfection, but to reveal the perfection in his imperfection. So we don't go in and modify any mistakes that are made. And we try not to edit a take. If we think it's worth listening to, or if it's interesting, something that happens in it that is flawed but interesting, we want that to be there. A coffee machine that needs... Whoa, wrong note there. Let me try it again. Like Miles used to do live. Back in the beginning, in the group, I wrote everybody at Sony a letter and said, you know, these recordings that we have, all the stuff we have in the vaults, all the things that Jeff left in boxes, all the tapes and everything, these are his true remains. And we should treat them the way we would if we were preparing his body for a proper funeral or a proper burial. We wouldn't put him in an Armani suit. We would definitely not give him a proper hairdo. We would not put some shiny new shoes on his feet. 
we would want him to look and sound and feel as if he was real and himself. Yeah, and I mean, that's a really tough thing to do with re-releases and posthumous releases especially. I think it's really easy for critics to sort of look at them with a skeptical eye and think, how much is true to an artist's legacy and true to who they were and how much is a fan grab or, you know, we have to just put something out. But there's been nothing released from Jeff that feels inauthentic. So how do you decide what ends up being released to the world and what stays behind? I like to describe it or liken it as to inheriting a lot of loose gems, amazing gems of different sizes and different values and different qualities. And what you want to do is create a collection of jewelry and adornments that look like they were meant to be together. So you don't go through and pick all the big ones out and put them all together in something and then all the little ones and then the medium-sized ones. You pick different sizes and different colors and different shades to create something interesting and unique that flows together. Generally speaking, that has been the way it works to create an album. But nowadays, they're not creating albums. So we don't have to look at the financial structure of is it something that enough people are going to buy that will justify all of the expense of making a physical CD or an album or all those other things. Now we can put it out there and just say, well, we'll put the entire legacy out there that's worth listening to. And as long as fans are interested in downloading it, then we know exactly whether we've got something they want or not. We don't have an artist who can go on tour. This is our only way of reaching out to those people who already love Jeff and to make it possible for new people to discover him. And this has really, really revolutionized the way that we're delivering Jeff's music. Now that there's a streaming world, it's astonishing to look at Jeff's numbers and what he pulls in for like average listeners or total listens on platforms like Spotify. And you have to think like these certainly aren't all people who were alive and were familiar with him in his time. It's reaching other generations. Right. How do you serve those newcomers? It's the power of the music, Carrie. I think the one thing I can take credit for is that we don't adorn his music, that we haven't auto-tuned it or brought in other musicians to fill in or do any cockamamie crazy thing that anybody might think of. The power is still in the music. It's in Jeff's performance. It's in the soul and the, I don't know how to explain the special sauce that he puts in to every performances. And no two performances of any song are alike. The fans get it. They do. They do. You know, you're not doing all of this crazy stuff like there's no hologram tour <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> there are tribute bands now there are some lovely young gentlemen who you know taught themselves guitar some of them have other bands with their original stuff but i think there's one in england and there's a, a couple more in the united states guys who get together and just do jeff buckley songs it's kind of cool yeah, how do you feel about that? All of these people who have been so influenced by him. Well, I think it's sweet. Hey, look, uh, anybody who wants to tackle a Jeff Buckley song is pretty brave. 
I'll attend tribute. So there's always, there's one every year on Jeff's birthday in Chicago that I like to go to at Uncommon Ground. And there are some amazing renditions of Jeff's songs out there. You know, the heartfelt devotion of getting up and flinging your heart at the moon and trying to sing A Lover You Should Have Come Over or Grace or any of those, it takes a real brave soul. It is brave, but it's also, I think it's a, a testament to how enduring and classic these songs are, that they keep being rediscovered and reperformed by people of all generations. Yeah, without ever having been a number one song. You know what I mean? Without ever having been a quote-unquote popular hit song. They keep going out there and touching people. Natalie Maines likes to do one of Jeff's songs. I think it's Last Goodbye. When she goes on and does solo tours, Katie Lang sings a Jeff song or two every once in a while. And and someone will send me a clip or a, a video of someone else doing a Jeff song on YouTube. And it just warms my heart. When they connect to the same ethos that Jeff connected to when they discovered the song. It's kind of like a chain, a connecting chain between Jeff's voice and then their voice and then someone else's voice. We got into this a little with the other guests, but you would know best. What do you think would be different in the music being released or his attitude towards the changing music industry? How would his career be different if he were still alive today? One thing for sure, sweetie. Everything that I'm releasing now or that that we're putting out there now probably would not have been put out there. He would have been making new songs and new sounds and, and hooking up with emerging artists of all kinds and lived a full life. He wanted to be an old enough rock and roller that he had to be rolled out onto the stage to play his guitar. And God knows we would have loved it if he had. He was in the midst of making some major changes just before he walked into the water. You know, it's kind of like when he first signed with the record label and they were releasing Grace and they were giving it the full court press. I mean, they were going to give him the same treatment that they did their other legacy artists, you know, their Billy Joel and Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, those guys. So his product manager picked him up from his apartment one day and said, I'm going to show you something. You're going to be so excited. It's wonderful. And they're coming down, heading towards Times Square, and up on the Jumbotron is the full-on cover of Grace. And the lady who was telling me the story said that she thought Jeff was going to climb out of the taxi through the trunk. (laughs) He was appalled, horrified to see his face up on the Jumbotron. And he said, no, no, that's not who I want to be. I want to be able to put my guitar on my shoulder and walk around through the world and just make a living. And she said, well, you signed with the wrong label. But he had gone all around the world and had crowds of people adoring him and girls fainting in Paris in the audience and all of that adulation. And it kind of rang hollow for him. He, he loved his fans, but it's not a normal life. It's not a normal life for anybody. And I think we've seen historically how that life where you're driven from one venue to another from one adoring crowd to another and they all want something from you they all seem to want to touch you or have a part of you or have a part of them in your life and after doing that day after day year after after and four years in a row you get kind of exhausted and flung about and he was about to make his life a lot more peaceful a lot more disciplined a lot more orderly and a lot less used 
and then he went swimming. And I, God, I miss him every fucking day. Lilac one, I feel unready for Speaking of how he would have existed in this world into old age, we see so many of our old rock icons now getting into doing their own legacy work and expanding into documentaries or books, and that's something you've done for Jeff, despite his short life. You're curating a legacy for him that it's bigger than his music. There are now graphic novels and biopics, theatrical stagings of his music mashed up with Romeo and Juliet. How do you choose these projects? Like, how do they come across your desk? Or do you plan any of them yourself? Actually, they all come from someone else, from an artist's inspiration. Michael Kimmel, who was a theater professor at Fordham University, was teaching a class on Shakespeare and listening to Grace. (laughs) And suddenly realized that a great many of those songs kind of matched up with certain scenes in Romeo and Juliet. And the next thing you know, I was getting a phone call. I said no. I usually say no. (laughs) In fact, I always say no. But if someone is persistent and the idea kind of uh, grows me and it does seem like it could be, you know, interesting, something to develop, then I I pursued it. And so when Michael convinced me that I needed to kind of just come to New York and just let me explain how I want to do this, because the way he described it in his letter didn't really do the idea justice. But he sat on a stool in a theater with, you know, a planned tape of Jeff's songs so that he could cue the songs as he read the Shakespeare and turned the page. And I just sat there, an audience of one in this tiny little theater and went, oh my God, he's got a great idea. The graphic novel was something that I was approached and thought, really? A cartoon about Jeff's life? I'm not sure. Comic book, huh? No, no, not a comic book. (laughs) Then I had an education in the world of graphic novels and graphic books. So, again, really quality project that came up. And the big one, of course, is when you had a more active role in creating the collection of journal entries you put together with David Brown, Jeff Buckley, His Own Voice, which is coming out this fall. I'm really curious how that project came together. David, how did you get involved? It's been a project that's been talked about for a number of years. It was sort of floated a number of many years ago by a book editor. For reasons I'm not sure, it was sort of backburnered for a while. I think, you know, Mary had many other projects in the works. And, you know, about four years ago, our team sort of reached out to me and said, well, you know, we're thinking of pursuing this. We'd love for you to be involved because they liked my book and I guess saw that I took Jeff's uh, music and life seriously. And I really did and do see him as one of the great lost talents of our time. So we just started the process, which took almost four years of kind of sifting through what was there in his archives and assembling it all and moving things around and putting pages in chronological order because they weren't. So things were in different notebooks. And it became pretty clear to me early on that there was enough material there touching on different points of his life that there was the makings there of essentially a, a sort of posthumous memoir, I guess you could call it. I was hesitant to do that because of all the hazari over Courtney Love. I thought, no, that's not, no, 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 no. And then Allison, my niece, who's been working with me for over a decade now, suggested that we make 
a selection of pages because there's a couple books that have been written about their life with Jeff or their two minutes with Jeff or whatever, and putting words in his mouth and describing his attitudes and his character in ways that were inauthentic and not truthful as far as I was concerned. So I thought an opportunity to make selection of Jeff's journals and to allow him to speak for himself about those very times and about those very people and those very experiences that he had for himself would be an important thing to do. So we collaborated on His Own Voice, which is coming out in October. And what do you think it offers fans? How do you think it informs the way they'll understand him or digest his music now, particularly Grace? What kind of insights did you find in his belongings? I think it will enlighten fans in many different ways. Jeff always carried a notebook with him, it seemed, and he was always jotting things down. He would just kind of uh, sometimes just throw things on the page. Whatever thoughts were on his mind, he would see something on the street and he'd write a long passage about it. Or if he was grappling with something, whatever was going on in his life, he would just kind of just like spew it all on the page. And he would do that with his lyrics. I mean, we would find early versions of Love You Should Come Over, Dream Brother, and a couple of other songs where clearly he would just like throw everything out there in a, in a first version. And then you'd see him kind of whittling it down with each subsequent rewrite. And it was all done by hand. It wasn't by computer either. He literally would rewrite the whole song. <laughs> you'd see the process of how he would start with the splatter against the, the barn kind of effect and then just like cut things out and take away some of that verbiage and kind of try to get to the essence of what he wanted to do with each page. One of the amazing documents we came across was a very old version of Mojo Pin, a version of that lyric from 1989, which is like two years before he started playing it with Gary Lucas and Gaza Monsters. I thought he wrote that song right then, that lyric. But here we have this notebook page, not with the complete lyric, but with that phrase and with a few key lines from it from two years earlier. So again, you get the sense that he was working on these things for a long time. And that's also an, an important thing to, uh, I think, that the fans hopefully will appreciate is that, you know, Jeff was not a natural songwriter. He really didn't start writing seriously until maybe in his 20s. He saw himself as a guitarist. I think Jeff had to learn how to be a songwriter. And I don't think that really started for real until he moved to New York in the early 90s and had to write songs, basically, for uh, Columbia Records and for an album and so forth. And I think that's borne out in all these different drafts of lyrics and even sometimes chord changes that you'll see throughout the book that it took him a while to get into the groove of just being a songwriter. And it was, it was a kind of a struggle for him, I think right up to the end, actually, I think he was still grappling with his voice and vision for his own material. But I think that's one of the things that will emerge a lot from the book and, and give a better understanding to his kind of musical journey. Obviously you're looking at a wealth of material and coming at it from two different perspectives. From a journalist's perspective, you're seeing a compelling story there. And from an estate executive and a mother's perspective, you can recognize that story component, but this is someone's life. How did you both grapple ethically with the question of, should we share this? I think Jeff and I may share some levels of, uh, you know, we're open, but we also know which parts of ourselves we want to keep for ourselves. You know, by its very nature, a project like this is a little invasive, and I knew that going into it. And so we took our time, and that's why it sort of took a long time for this book to come together. We didn't just say, oh, let's throw it together in a couple of months. The process of deciding which pages we would include and which weren't was a very serious process. 
I sort of did a kind of a first cut, I guess you'd call it. And there were some pages in there about particular people or relationships. And we wanted to avoid that. You know, we didn't want to be tabloidy or disrespectful to him. We wanted to focus on both his own memories of his life story and also the creative aspects of it. Things like that made me feel like this was uh, not as invasive. If we could show his creative process and his career aspects of his life, that would be a respectful way of uh, of using these pages. But it was something we we grappled with a lot, you know, for sure. And Mary, that leads me to ask, Jeff's belongings and archives are a finite pool of material. How do you ration what gets released? And do you think there will ever be a time when you say, this is it? With the exception of maybe a few more full live concerts that we have the soundboard uh, recordings of, I'm not aware of any real quality recording sessions. Maybe a possibility of some radio shows that are, that belong to those other radio stations that I don't have access to that might exist out there, might come up. But what we're doing now, right now with these tracks that are coming out of the vaults and the video material going into a documentary now, uh, Amy Berg and I are putting together an agreement for her to do a documentary. She did the one on uh, Janis Joplin that was just amazing. So she's just the right person, I think, to do this. In my mind, there's going to be a kind of a completion of what is there. And then what hasn't been listened to, there may be some songs that Jeff wrote and recorded and that we haven't heard. Um, there's a whole box of tapes that no one's listened to since Jeff did. I'm I'm not ready to go through that yet. Wow. Maybe nothing, because it's personal stuff, you know. It was in a personal box. There's a box of tapes. I have no idea what's on the tapes. It could be old uh, voicemails. It could be things that he said to himself, personal journals, and audio journals. There are some things that a mother shouldn't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's some things a mother shouldn't dabble into. And uh, frankly, if I'm not going to use it, I'm not going to leave it behind for someone else to use it. My attorney will take care of that. Well, that seems like part of your job as a curator, not only to further his legacy, but also protect it. And I think what has come out and the quality of it shows that a lot of care and consideration has gone into doing a very tough job at the end of the day. Losing him was hard. (laughs) Losing him was hard. Missing him is hard. Doing this, it, it makes it feel good a little. I miss my guy and I hope, no, I feel strongly that I've, that I've done him proud. I love to think I have. I think I've kind of drawn other people in and, and allowed them to be a part of it and to contribute to the legacy. I have no problem talking about the guy and the work. It's the most important thing I will have done. And, uh, That suits me just fine. Jeff Buckley lives on through the beautiful work that he created, continuing to inspire more good in the world with a single studio album and a scant 30 years than most people could manage in a lifetime. Grace, as Buckley so eloquently put it, keeps you open for more understanding.
This is it for our season on Jeff Buckley's Grace. While the show will go on, this is where you and I have to part ways. But don't worry, you'll be in very capable hands. It's my pleasure to introduce the host of the Opus Going Forward, Andy Bothwell, a.k.a. Astronautilus. Hey, Carrie. Thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you for passing the torch. I'm really excited to pick up where you leave off. We're taking on a record by one of my favorite artists of all time, Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger. It's a record that not only changed his career, but changed country music and guitar music forever. And I can't wait to dive deep into that one. If you want to learn a little bit more about me, you can follow me on social media under Astronautilus, A-S-T-R-O-N-A-U-T-A-L-I-S. I've made my living in music for the last 15 years, and I'm really excited to talk to you about music going forward. If you want to see me perform live, I'm about to hit road on a tour where I'm only riding motorcycles all through the Midwest, and you can uh, find out all about that all on my social media. Until then, I will see you guys on the next season of The Opus with Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger. I'm really excited to see where you take it, Andy. Thanks, Gary. I'm so grateful to all of you for joining me on this season and to all of my guests, Mary Guibert, David Brown, Daphne A. Brooks, Lizzie Hale, Miles Kennedy, Annie Zaleski, and Warren Zanes. This might be where I part ways with the opus, but this doesn't have to be our last goodbye. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Corgan, C-A-R-R-I-E. C-O-U-R-O-G-E-N, if you want to chat. If you liked this season and you've got a moment to spare, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or check out Podchaser, where you can review specific episodes. Pretty handy for a series that changes topics every month. And if you're still eager for more retrospectives on Grace, be sure to check out our additional article content at consequenceofsound.net. To keep up with future seasons, find us on Facebook at The Opus CPN or consequenceofsound.net slash The Opus. Jeff Buckley, his own voice, will be out this October. And right now, you can find Grace, Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk, Mystery White Boy, and a number of live recordings on streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify, including Sky Blue Skin, a previously unreleased demo from 1996. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony, written and hosted by Carrie Corgan and recorded in New York City at ACAST by Ali Sprung and Tim Ruggieri. Editing and production by Kat Blackard. Our theme music is Coach Hop. Find more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork by Stephen Fish. That's all. That's all it is. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast.